please turn to Acts chapter 4. I'll read uh, the first 22 verses, but we'll um, be primarily looking at uh, verse 5 and following. Acts 4, beginning at verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And, it's, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no farther among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because, the people, because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. May these testimonies be our meditation, giving us more understanding than our teachers. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with the hearing of your word. May you give us faith to understand that which is spiritually discerned. And may you give us hearts that are zealous to obey all that we have heard. And I ask that you would sanctify my sinful lips to proclaim the gospel of the grace of God, to proclaim truth. Keep me from error, Lord, and may, uh, may you 
our Savior, be exalted in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, the Babylon Bee um, accurately portrayed the manipulative ability of government news agencies to communicate a completely false message, all the while using factually correct words. For example, citizens of Pompeii experienced sudden heat wave to announce the utter eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which utterly obliterated the city of Pompeii, the, the wicked city of Pompeii, for, for millennia, and nobody even knew where it was for a long time. Or Abraham Lincoln dies after hitting head on a bullet. Millions of Soviet Union residents receive free housing and work opportunities in Siberia to uh, refer to the exile of political dissidents to a land of, uh, of uh, not much more than snow and ice. Or Roman leader killed after knife accident, referring to the assassination of Julius Caesar on the Senate floor. Or more recently, Malaysian flight delayed indefinitely, referring to that Boeing 777 jet that disappeared over the Indian Ocean and without a trace for years in, in what probably was an act of um, suicide by the pilot. Or Joan of Arc dies after onset of heat exhaustion when she was burned at the stake for... Um, you see, these types of headlines, as, uh, very, I thought as I read that, very accurately characterize the Jewish leaders that put Peter and John in jail for he healing a man. This was a very big deal that was happening. Thousands of people are being converted in a very short time. This is only you know, months since uh, the resurrection. Weeks. And uh, we, we don't know exactly how many people were in that city. Estimates vary rather widely, but I, I think Edersheim puts the number at about 200,000 to 250,000 people. And, and he's about right in the middle, so I, and I think he's a rather reliable uh, witness. So, he, so if you um, go with that number, about just under a quarter million people, and that was ba he based that on the premise that the ancient city of Jerusalem was about twice the size of the, of the modern city. But if his numbers are correct, that means around 2% of the entire population was converted in a very short amount of time. And that 5,000 5, number only includes men because that's, that was the counting. So women and children are added in there. There's easily two to three times that number, maybe more. And that's... That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. That's uh, that's like um, 
seven, eight thousand, maybe even ten thousand people being converted in Conroe in a matter of a couple weeks. If you had ten thousand people converted, um, that's going to be big news in this city. Even the Houston Chronicle would have to come up with a headline for that. And, th- and these aren't just these aren't wallflowers. These are people. This is a church that is praying daily. They are breaking bread from house to house and and praying together daily. This was a this was a um, a mighty group of people. Wonders, signs, and wonders are being done in their midst. People are selling their possessions to to provide for emergent needs among this gar- large group of people. Any if you had an influx of of this many people into a city the size of Conroe, that would create housing needs. When that would be felt in the marketplace. Uh, this was a threat to the temple racket that was going on. And that was a very profitable racket for the high priests. They could, they could buy, um, they could sell sacrifices uh, to people at, at exorbitant prices and, um, uh, and make, they made a lot of money. They were very, very wealthy, very wealthy from this business. And so this, this conversion of people is, a, is an ec- economic threat potentially against them. It's also a, th- a loss of control. They're losing, they're losing control of the narrative. Not only that, and we looked at that, we looked last week in detail at the, the disturbance that the gospel meant, the exclusivity of the gospel message, that this, the threat that that posed to them. But on top of that, Peter has now accused them of murdering the Messiah in, back in... Uh, in um, back in the uh, chapter three, in his sermon, he had said that the leaders, their leaders, had uh, they did it in ignorance, but they had killed the Messiah. So these leaders are feeling quite a bit of uh, uh, of uh, anxiety, to put it mildly. They're losing control, and so. They've, with violence, come upon Peter and and John and put them in jail and possibly even the man that was healed. And I say that because when when they pull him out the next morning, there's a. It says that they noticed this man. They saw this man was standing with them. In this court, the man who had been healed was standing with them, and so it's very possible that maybe he had been put in jail as well. I don't know what the Bible doesn't say, but that may indicate that. That might have been some night in jail with uh, Peter and John. But they, uh, they drag him out the next morning and they drag him in front of this council. It says they are the, el- the rulers, the elders in verse 5, and the scribes. And th- those are words that describe what elsewhere in the New Testament is the Sanhedrin or the council. And Luke, Luke um, lists these people as, in his account of Jesus' trial in Luke 22, the elders of the people, both chief priests and the scribes, came together and led Jesus into the council. So he's using Luke is using the exact same words. So the rulers that he's referring to would be the, the priests that are the heads of the 24 divisions. Remember there were, remember there were 24 
uh, divisions. And Zacharias, the, the father of John the Baptist, ha- he was one division. And so there were 24 divisions. They would have duty for, for a couple of weeks, and then they would, the next group would come in and have do temple duty. And so the priests of the, the heads of those 24 divisions would have been the priest rulers that were in this uh, council. The elders would have been the elders of the people. These are men of wisdom and experience that are chosen from among the, the, the people. They're not probably not priests, or they're not priests or Levites, but they are, they are men of uh, experience and wisdom to, to judge in, in these matters. And then the scribes that uh, Luke says, that the scribes would have been the learned teachers, the lawyers, the experts in understanding and interpreting the law. And so the, there was a, this was a 71, some people say 72, uh, but 71 member council composed basically of, of, each of these three groups. And this was, the, this was the same people, these were the same people that had unjustly tried and crucified Christ. These were the people that actually sought, actively sought false witnesses to testify against Jesus and to accuse him of anything worthy of death so that they could execute him. And remember, these are the people that met at night. And so this is the group that that Peter is um, and John are dragged in front of. They, they were probably, the uh, uh, um, Bible doesn't say, but uh, other historical documents speak of th- these men being assembled in a semicircle so that uh, they could see each other. And then the, there was a presiding leader and some secretaries that would have sat ab- elevated above that. And it, so the Bible says Peter and John were brought into their midst, into the middle. So they are surrounded um, by, these, uh, by these rulers. Rulers who have a bent for, for acting in unjust and, and unrighteous ways. This court is comprised of the rulers, the elders of the people, and the scribes, the teachers of the law, but they have no love for God's people. Here's somebody that's been healed of a congenital lameness, unable to walk for 40 years, over 40 years, which means that he really couldn't work in that day. And they don't rejoice with him. They're not in the least bit happy for this man that he's been healed, that he can now leap and walk. You know, even just ordinary human love for one another. You would think they would have some measure of sympathy or some measure of of, uh, gladness for this man. You know, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep with those who weep. But... They don't do any of that. Nothing. They never express how happy they are for this man. They never express, look, we are really glad, brother, that you've been healed of this. Never say that. They not only have no love for God's people, they have no love for God himself. There's no awe at what the Lord has done. There's no gratitude for this extraordinary miracle that he's worked. This is somebody 
they have walked through. Remember, this man sat at the temple gate and he'd been doing that for years. These men have walked past him many, many times. And here he is now leaping and dancing and praising the Lord. They want none of it. They, don't, they not only don't praise God for the miracle in their midst, they try to stop this man who's been healed from praising God. This is evidence of exactly what Jesus said of these scribes and Pharisees. They don't enter into the way and they try to stop others from going in themselves. Right? These are the people that laid burdens too heavy for the people to bear on the people. Burdens that they couldn't even carry themselves. And that's what's going on here. But now here's where this uh, disinformation began. They ask a very misleading question. A miracle has just been performed. A man has been healed. And they but they completely ignore this very significant fact. They, they drag the apostles into their midst, set them in front of this very august assembly of powerful people and ask them, by what name or power have you done this thing? You notice they can't even call it what it is. They don't even say this miracle, this amazing healing. By what power have you done this? We'd like to be able to know that's not what they're asking. They don't even mention this. They don't even mention what it is. It's just this thing, this thing. Who gave you the power, the authority? That's what they're asking by name. And they ask who, by what name. It's by what authority. You know, we, we talk that sometimes like that too. Right? I, um, who, you know, little siblings might say, well, who, who, who's, who, who said that? Right? And siblings will say, well, mom did or dad did. Right? They, they use the name. That carries authority. That's what they're asking here. It's the implication of this question right, is that you don't have authority to do what you did. You acted outside of your authority and you're out of order. That's the implication. That's what you would hear. That's what you would think if you heard somebody asking this question. You would think, if you didn't know better, that, that somebody has just done something that they don't have authority to do. They've, act, they've colored outside the lines. See, this, this is, makes this an ungodly question. It's manipulation. It's an attempt to gain control of a situation by eliciting an emotional response instead of a biblical response. And, it, and manipulation often includes some kind of intimidation. And the men in this council were master manipulators, just like our government news agencies today. They're master manipulators of the truth. And they use intimidation. They jailed them all night and then dragged them in front of this council of powerful men. And then they ask an unfair question that's designed to elicit an emotional and angry outburst, making by making it seem like these men had done something wrong. It's a question that's designed to put them on the defensive and to make them justify themselves. By what a power, by what authority have you done this? Justify yourself. It's really, it was a question that's designed to turn the situation to their advantage by making the apostles look like the bad guys and making themselves look like the upright 
just defenders of law and order. And so they, they try to reframe this whole question, this whole discussion, and to draw the disciples into conflict over the, over the question of whether the apostles had authority to do what they did. And, and in so doing, they completely overshadow, they attempt to completely overshadow this glori- glorious miracle that, that Jesus had done. But Peter hasn't spent three years with Jesus for nothing. Remember, on a number of occasions, the, these same people attempted to manipulate Jesus in very similar ways. And Pe- Peter had watched over those three years how Jesus masterfully always turned the table and made them look like the foolish ones. See, Jesus knew how to resist manipulation. And so Peter learned from, from that. Um, remember, uh, he, um, P, uh, Jesus had uh, done the same thing with the, uh, with the authorities in, on a couple of occasions. Um, he... Um, uh, in, in Luke one, Jesus or Luke six, sorry, Jesus was asked that question about eating grain on on the uh, on Sunday. They were walking and eating grain. He said, "Well, uh, you know, the, the disciples or the Jews asked, how, how come he could do that? Was it wasn't he breaking the law?" Or they asked the question about taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to to Caesar? You remember, Jesus always turned the tables on them. By doing two things. Uh, So Peter's answer says. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man. By what means he has been made well. Let it be known to you all. And to all the people of Israel. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Whom you crucified. Whom God raised from the dead by him. This man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter does two things in this answer. First, he points them to their failure to do their duty under the law of God. He makes it personal to them. And he points them back to their personal responsibility, their duty that they haven't done. Let it be known to you that by the name of Jesus whom you crucified, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders. You, you, you. This is what you have done. He points them back to their responsibility, the things that they have done. They tried to accuse Peter and John by implication by a manipulative question. But Peter accuses them in his answer of not just a failure to remember something, but he accuses them of breaking God's law and murdering the Messiah. It's a failure of their duty as a court to uphold justice. And he points out to them that they are an unjust court, that they've 
had a travesty of justice, a miscarriage of justice, and they've murdered, they murdered an innocent man. That's the first thing. He points to their responsibility, to their duty, in this case to uphold justice. And then second thing is that he points them to what God commands them to do. To be saved. To be saved. You notice how he turns, he beautifully turns this unjust, manipulative question designed to make him defensive, designed to, emo- to elicit an emotional, angry response. That here, we've just healed somebody and you're going to accuse us by what authority? He turns it into a, into a command to them to, re- to, to be saved, to repent and believe. There is no other name given under heaven, uh, under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. This is a duty. He's pointing out to them a, a duty, a command. They must repent and they must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, this very one whom they have killed. This is just like Paul told the Athenians. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a command. It's a gospel command. It's an imperative that we repent and believe. And Peter brings this to them in a very direct way. You must be saved. Peter does answer their question though. But he does it in such a way, in such language that he accomplishes the first two points in giving his answer. And he, and he turns it into a gospel call. By the name, he tells him, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He uses his full name. And I thought it was interesting that, that the account in the last chapter where he heals the man, he said to this man, Um, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In these two instances, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus' Jesus is referred to by this full name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus is his name that means Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. Christ is his messianic title. His mes- he was the anointed one. It's the Greek word for anointed one. And he is of Nazareth, that lowly place that we, that we talked about, that, that you only went there if you were actually going to Nazareth. There was no other, it was not any main road. There was nothing of importance there. In fact, the disciples, remember, said, what, what can come of Nazareth? What good thing come out of, comes out of Nazareth? So it was, it, it, it's... it's um, identifying with Jesus um, coming from an obscure, unknown place. By Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the only two places in the entire New Testament where Jesus is called by that full name. Jesus of Nazareth is very common in the Gospels. And Christ is common and Jesus is common. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this is the only place that we read that. Now, Peter did not give this response in his own power. 
Peter does this by the power of the Holy Spirit. When, when, when he's asked this question, Luke records, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gave this powerful answer, turning the tables upon them. Peter didn't have an op- a long opportunity to, to plan a lengthy defense, but it is, it is in this moment that the Holy Spirit equips him to answer. And this is what, exactly what Jesus told them in Luke 12, 11. He said, now when they bring you into the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, that's exactly what's happened. Do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you that very hour what you ought to say. Now, I just want to comment a minute Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, wasn't he already full of the Holy Spirit? Aren't Christians to be full of the Holy Spirit? Yes, we are. And yes, Peter was. And as believers, the Holy Spirit dwells with us. We are God's temple. His, and his Holy Spirit does dwell with us. And we are then full of the Holy Spirit. But, but there's a distinction between this ongoing, continual fullness of the Holy Spirit, which, which characterizes us, which defines uh, who we are as those who are filled with the Spirit, as those who are led by the Spirit. For these are the sons of God. We're not led by, we're not, um, led by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Yes, so that's an ongoing sense. But there is another way here that, that we are filled with, to be filled with the Spirit, is to be equipped to do what, God is calling us to do in that particular moment. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. Remember, Bezalel was somebody who's filled with the Spirit to do a particular task, not namely to make the temple, to do all this amazing work. Remember making that, the, the uh, candlestick, which all of one piece. Incredible gifting to be able to do that. He was filled with the Spirit for that particular job. Uh, Joshua was filled with the Spirit Uh, to be able to lead the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy 34, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses laid his hands on him so that that, uh, the children of Israel heeded him. So those were special giftings. Uh, And so there's a distinction then between the ongoing fullness of the spirit that we all have, we always have, so that we are led by the Spirit and uh, we, we, we uh, speak by the Spirit. We are, uh, the thing, we are enabled by the Spirit to, to obey and so on. Uh, the, fruit, the Spirit bears fruit in our life and so on. This is the ongoing fullness of the Spirit. But in this case, this Peter is filled with the Spirit in to, to especially enable him to answer this charge, this question by the Pharisees, by this court, and to turn the tables on them and to turn this into a gospel call for them to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what characterizes Peter then in being filled with the Spirit? So in in Bezalel's case, he could make things. In Joshua's case, he had wisdom to, to lead a military campaign and to lead the children of Israel. In Peter's case, he's filled with boldness 
and he's enabled to speak the truth. He's filled with boldness and he's able to speak the truth. You know, it would be very easy to be intimidated in this situation. If you've ever been in court, you know it can be intimidating. And you don't, aren't able to say the things that you want to say. And you're not able to say them as clearly as you want to say them. Because there is something about being in that environment that is a little intimidating. It, and we're not at ease. And so the Holy Spirit fills Peter and he gives to him a boldness. So that in this intimidating situation, in, when faced with these people who had power to kill him, like they did Jesus, he is able uh, to speak with boldness. And he's able, secondly, to speak the truth. He could tell these men that they had killed the Messiah. That they had crucified Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the Pharisees recognized this boldness. They recognized they weren't dealing with just an ordinary person says they realized they had been with Jesus. Maybe Peter's spirit-filled answer, turning the tables on them, reminded them of the many times that Jesus had done that. And they said, ah, here is somebody who's been with Jesus. They recognized a boldness coming from people that they didn't think should have this boldness. These, they said, were uneducated and untrained men. Uneducated. They, they were not men of letters. They didn't have any degrees behind their name. They had never been to uh, Gamaliel's school and learned the finer matters of the law like Paul. They were, in that sense, uneducated. And so they marveled. This, this was not what they expected from people that didn't have advanced learning and advanced degrees to be able to argue in, in a court like this. Of course, we know that Peter wasn't untrained. He'd been three years with Jesus being trained in, in the doctrine, in, in the practical matters, in evangelism, and, and he'd been watching Jesus. But he... but. What set what made this happen? What set Peter apart was the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they are silenced. They are silenced by this answer. They don't know. They can't say anything. This man that they've apparently arrested with Peter and John is standing in their midst. I think that's one possible explanation for why he would be in their midst. Normally these, um, you, nobody else would be standing with the accused other than the accused. So there's silence. They, they can't say anything. This man has obviously been healed. Every, they said everybody in, in Jerusalem knows this. So they're stuck. They can't deny that he's been healed. 
Peter has just identified the name by which he has been healed, the power. They've just been called to repent that they must believe on this man that they've murdered. They realize that the better part of wisdom is not to say anything at this point. They're silenced. They are also afraid of the people. It says uh, in verse 21, they threaten them further, letting them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people. Well, they are the court. They're the ones that have the authority of life and death. They're the ones that can execute the sentence. What, what do the people have to do with this? Well, they're afraid. They're afraid of the people. That's what, ha that's what the people have to do with this. The people had no legal authority to stop them. But God sent them a spirit of fear. Just like David says, when my enemies come upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. These manipulators have been silenced and, they, and they're not even able to further punish these because they're afraid. They're afraid of the people. They're afraid of losing credibility. They're afraid of losing any, any popularity that they had. <coughs> and so they simply, uh, well, well they put the first thing they do is to put them out of their court so they can talk without being, uh, without being made foolish. And we will look next week at, uh, this, at what they do say when they bring them back in and Peter's response. I think it's worthy of a message. Uh, Peter's response is, is to basically tell them, no, no, we're not going to do what you tell us to do. But what, can, what do we learn um, from, from this example, from this scripture passage? One is we need to learn to pray for boldness. To pray for boldness. You know, they say uh, you know, that uh, s snakes are, are more afraid of us than, uh, than uh, or they're afraid of us. So often we forget that. We, we're afraid of them. If we almost step on them, we, you have that sudden uh, panic, right? That you almost stepped on one. Right? But we... But we need to remember they're afraid of us. Well, that's the way it is with Christ's enemies. They are afraid of Christ. He has conquered all his enemies. He's crushed the head of the serpent, who is the leader of all this army. And, and so they, they are afraid of God's people. And we need to pray for boldness. And that's what the apostles do uh, when they get back. Is they pray for boldness. We also need to seek the power of the, and the filling of the Holy Spirit to recognize that we cannot do the things that the Lord will call us to do with, by our own power. That we need the power of His Holy Spirit. And, and thirdly, we need to trust the Lord's Word. That in that moment when we need the power of His Spirit, He will give to us. He will fill us with his Holy Spirit to give us boldness, to enable us to proclaim the truth and to turn and attempt 
to deny the truth or to conceal the truth into a proclamation of the gospel and a call for gospel obedience. So pray, pray for boldness. Pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to do everything. We, as parents, you know, to train our children, we need the filling of the Holy Spirit to be able to address controversies and, and matters of uh, where, where we need to tr- teach and to train our children. We need the, the Holy Spirit's wisdom. We need, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord give to us his Holy Spirit and may he give us not a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of boldness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given to us in Christ every spiritual resource and you call us to possess, to take possession of what is ours in you what you have given to us. To possess our possessions in Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us boldness that we may speak the truth. That we may speak the truth that is most being challenged at, at that point that it needs spoken. We ask, Lord, for a bold witness with our not only in among ourselves, but among those with whom we work. May you enable us to speak the truth without fear, to speak it boldly. Lord, may you give us a boldness with our neighbors, that we may speak without fear of offending them. Lord, enable us to speak the truth in love with a holy boldness. Lord, we ask for your, your Holy Spirit, uh, especially this week. In whatever challenge you place before us, whatever challenge we face in our home, in our marriages, with our families, with our extended families, with our neighbors, at work. Lord, may we know and remember our need for your Holy Spirit to enable us to do anything at all. Lord, we pray that you might increase and that we might decrease. We pray that our lives might more and more reflect the glory of Christ. Reflect your truth and your righteousness. That we might be those who are uh, slow to speak and slow to anger, but quick to hear. We ask, Lord, for your filling. In Jesus' name, amen.